My favorite moment. My own journey. The best day of class. And it was just such an amazing experience. Thus we get to know each other. It set me on a path. It really sparked something inside of me. Drive a love for seeing the professor like really all i want to do is become a better me this is the coolest thing ever that i really enjoyed about saint rose hey neighbor come on in we're back at it neighbor for our final episode of season one we did it yay it was a great way to get to know some folks on campus who we don't get to see every day yeah, and I love, love, love hearing their stories, how they design classes, how they start new organizations, and most of all, how they collaborate. Yeah, me too. I'm sad the first season's ending, but I'm really glad we're going to be back next year. We will indeed. Shall we get the conversation started? Let's do it. Welcome, listeners, and thank you for tuning back into Dear Neighbor. I'm Liz Richards, here with my co-host, Emily Pinkerton. If you've tuned in before, you already know what we're about. We invite faculty, students, and administrators to sit down and have unscripted conversations about teaching, learning, and our college community here at St. Rose. In our last episode, we explored how professors and students work together to create a sense of trust in the classroom, specifically when talking about race and racism. Today, we'd like to delve deeper into this topic by learning from folks who used anti-racist teaching tools in their course design. And if you haven't listened to episode three yet, we strongly recommend doing so since it's the natural lead into today's episode, which is part two of conversations about race in the classroom and beyond. Are we ready to cue up the tape? We are. And as a reminder, we're returning to my conversation with communication senior Jada Hart, who tells us about her experience with anti-racist pedagogy in the classroom. Have you ever experienced anti-racist pedagogy, anti-racist curricular content, decentering whiteness? Yes and no. So I'm a part of the Bull Women's Leadership Institute, and we talk about discrimination and ways that we as like women leaders, people who want to be leaders in our own field will, can make a working environment better. We've kind of decentralized not only, I guess, white supremacy, white people, but also men in the sense that, you know, this is kind of like the lens that we've been seeing it for years. And we've been talking about different ways and different methods that we can incorporate that into our lives. On the flip side, I do wish that some of my classes would discuss that more looking outside of the lens of a specific lens that people have been taught for years. Because while the curriculum in some classes is pretty straightforward about, okay, this person invented this and we started with this. It's very like, very linear and we're going in that way. There is a lot of classes that I kind of leave with a lot of questions wondering who else was involved, other ways we can incorporate different things into our curriculum about people of color, about, about women. There is a lot of examples that I could give wanting more conversation um, to help promote anti-racism in my classes. Specifically, I would say like some film classes. I wish there that was a bit more of a discussion, especially because with the age of social media, there is an abundance of ways to um, create art 
and there is an abundance of content creators. Therefore, I feel like that's important to talk about, but it's not really something we addressed much in class. So yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, we see that in film classes so clearly, like the masters of cinema, there are plenty of people making films, but who are we looking at? We're looking at people who look like the norm. They're all white guys. And it's not to discredit their work, of course, you know, a lot of these like the history filmmakers, they have definitely like had a contribution that is reflective in a lots of movies and television today. But there are so many people who also contribute to that that I did not learn about in my film class. I learned about it through a TikTok or on my own research of wondering how something started. And then I'm like, whoa, this was created by a person of color. That's kind of crazy. I could talk about film history a lot because there is a bunch of things that I really do wish that we could have learned. And I think something that disappoints me in a sense is how, you know, we weren't decentralizing whiteness. We were talking about, you know, these, the greats and the filmmakers, and this is what it is today. And there's just, especially with film now, there's just so much culture behind it. There's so many different conversations that can be had, but that's really not what the course provided. Yeah, I mean, there's so many great examples that that people very, very easily, not just ignore, but dismiss, you know? And I mean, as you're talking about. So I appreciate you giving that feedback and I'm really hoping for change going forward. I did take a race class and gender course. I took ethics and values as well. And um, throughout that class, we watched a lot of documentaries and films and personal testimonies from people of color, from people within the LGBT community. And it was just so exciting because I feel like people in the class were opening their eyes to this new perspective that they hadn't seen outside that class. I honestly think that class should be a requirement because we did have a lot of really tough conversations and things that a lot of people may not have thought about because it doesn't apply to them. There was like a lot of white people in that class who took it which came to my surprise. But then throughout that class, just learning about these experiences of others, there were students who were like, you know what, now like, I feel like I understand my friends a little bit more. And I understand like where they're coming from and their own personal background. And it was really interesting to see. We did have a lot of assignments with discussion boards where our teacher would have us watch a documentary or a short film about people of color, or as I said, LGBT. And in that discussion forum, we weren't allowed to just be like, this is a great film, or this is a great show. We had to take at least like two or three points from the video that we found fascinating. It really just encouraged conversation. And that was a really great, important class that definitely decentralized whiteness. And it really took you off the agenda, so to say, took you out of this perspective that people look through almost all of the time. When you think about like traditional formal education here in the U.S., like there is a very particular lens that for the most part, 
everything's being pushed through. Um, but courses like that, and also just you and who you are as a person, where you've grown up, your own identity, does it make you think, does it make you think like, well, yeah, classes don't have to follow this format. Classes don't have to look through this lens all the time. I do think that often simply because of the media that I consume. And with that, there is a lot that I feel like is very valuable to students, whether or not they're learning about film or journalism. Or I think you can apply this to all sorts of degrees and majors because networking and learning about all these different people, those are some things that are going to translate throughout whatever you do. Do you ever think that like, there's so many courses, regardless of discipline, that could follow this same sort of methodology of decentering whiteness or um, just opening up more. Yeah, absolutely. That can just be as simple as having a unit within the curriculum to talk about decentering whiteness, to talk about other people of color within the community, within that field that would just be so efficient and helpful for students, students of color in particular, because it's very encouraging and engaging to know that your history has made its impact and people care about it. And it makes you want to make a difference in the world too. So I, I do think it's very essential and it can be incorporated. It's not something that will change the course indefinitely. It'll, it's not something that will make, is this a different class? It's just something that you can add on. And I think that adds just so much more value to the class. I mean, I think a lot of what you're talking about is representation too, and the importance of representation. But you know, it shouldn't be this add-on. It should be completely yeah. embedded. Yeah. Being able to see yourself within another person, somebody teaching you that content who genuinely understands and genuinely cares is so important. I can count on my fingers how many teachers of color I've had and three within my own department. And it's something that I don't want to say has hindered my education, but it would just add so much more value to it if there was more representation, especially in a field like film and communications. It would encourage me, but also help me apply it to my own career path. Like there are anti-racist efforts at St. Rose, but I really feel like they need to grow a bit more. I would love to see more faculty get involved in those kind of efforts. It just shows, okay, that they are taking this seriously. They want to help create reform, not only in the St. Rose community, but like even in within their classrooms. I feel like teachers would benefit from courses like the one I took, the race class and gender class. And knowing that teachers are taking that would just feel so, so good. Cause it's like, all right, they're, they're ingesting all of the things that we are, you know, they're going to try to make an effort and they know the same things that we know. Therefore they can hold themselves accountable a little bit more. We can hold them accountable a little bit more. I, I wish I would just like to see like a lot more student and teacher involvement. And I think I would like the college to kind of push that on faculty a bit more too. That would help grow the anti-racist environment that they're trying to encourage right now. Wow, 
wow, Jada gave some really specific ideas for how professors can do more for their students where equity, representation, and challenging systemic racism are concerned. Yeah, and she specifically says she wishes her instructors would engage more in some of the same work that she is doing. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear a student perspective, and I'd love to hear more because Jada is just one student. And I think it's important that we as St. Rose faculty hear this. We are not perfect. There's still more for us, particularly white faculty, to learn. Definitely. I think our next guests will get into this too and offer us some specific examples of how this has worked in their classroom. Are we ready to invite them back? Yeah. And as a reminder to our listeners, we are returning to our conversation with Professor of Political Theory, Angela Ledford, and her students, Brianna Casserly and Mark Edom. The classes that you've taken with me, they all deal centrally with race. And what I'd like to do is start off by asking you, how you think those conversations happen. You know, there's a large body of literature that talks about crafting a thoughtful and open classroom environment. And that has to be a conscious effort on the part of the instructor. You know, you kind of got get to get students uh, on board with that. I think I've taken four of your classes, Professor Ledford. And, you know, I think that you are pretty deliberate about setting up the classroom in a way that can foster um, thoughtful and meaningful conversation right around race and the importance that race plays particularly in this society right and that even if you just think nationally right it's a very sort of a, it's a loaded conversation right and and a lot of people are either afraid of having it or afraid of just the way it's sort of you know taints, I think, maybe their image of, of, of this country or, um, you know, their place in it. So I think you've done that um, very deliberately. I think you've done, you know, a great job of making people feel safe and, you know, open and willing to share their views. I think another good thing is kind of the, uh, the intimate sizes of the classroom, right? So it's not as if you're speaking to um, 100 students, right? It's a lot more, I think, challenging and nerve-wracking to kind of air your opinions in that, you know, in that large of a space. But our classroom sizes are about, you know, 10 to 15 people and and it makes it far easier to um, to have those conversations. Dr. Ledford's really good at creating an environment where everyone can kind of feel like they can speak for themselves, not only from their own experiences, but what they're learning in the class. So I've also taken four classes with Dr. Ledford. We've both taken Race and Mass Incarceration, which is probably her most popular class, which I really appreciated. As you said, the the small class size, I really like the Socratic seminar kind of style and the media, the media that we analyzed that that was really like profound. So you had kind of like an academic background where we're looking at kind of like a birth of a nation and we're looking at texts from academics about race and mass incarceration. And just kind of having that open dialogue, examples of media and true academic work really allows the conversation to grow amongst college students, amongst a group of people who come from all sorts of different backgrounds, who need that exposure to general conversations about race that are kind of outside of their own normative backgrounds. You, you, can, you can tell when a professor is structuring 
their class in a way where they want to encourage dialogue. And you can tell when it's more of a class where they want to give you the information and then you do with that information what you will. And I think the Socratic seminar is definitely probably the best structure for kind of having those dialogues while mm -hmm. keeping, you know, your power and position well respected without hurting anyone in the room. So the so Socratic seminar kind of allows the power dynamics between the student and the professor to become more balanced because in order to advance the dialogue, people have to be speaking. People have to be asking each other's questions. And you're not always going to ask those questions or continue those dialogues from just based off of the reading. You're going to talk about your impressions. You're going to talk about your experience. And you're going to talk about other works of literature that might be similar. So within the Socratic seminar, that is probably the best way to balance power between student and professor, because the dialogue stays going from every member in the room. And I find that some students really love to participate, and there are plenty of students who are terrified of participating, probably much less so for what I'm going to think as from what their peers are going to think about them. Over the years, one of the things that I've learned is that you can talk to students about the importance for their intellectual growth to be able to read critically and write effectively, but they also need to be able to talk about what they're learning at the same time, that it's all part of the process. So I can, you know, impress that upon them as, as much as I can, but I've found that the thing that's most successful is that if you do create this environment where they feel comfortable potentially talking and they're experiencing this conversation that's happening among the students in the class, at some point they want to be a part of it. And it's less about me prodding them and them saying, I don't want to be left out of this, you know? As an incredibly talkative student who loved talking in your um, seminars, I definitely would have dialogues on the side with quieter students about how they felt about the content. Because, you know, with the Socratic seminar style, some of the complaints about the style is that people who are more quiet won't participate. But they actually do get an experience about hearing yeah. what other students feel about it and watching the active dialogue and the participation and the realizations that people have, you know, kind of sitting in a circle all together, looking at each other's faces while we're processing this information. You yeah. know, the structure of, it, of the circle really helps us talk together rather than sitting in front of a room, looking at a projector screen or whiteboard. We're taking this class together. And so to a certain degree, we should have a level of comfort between each other where we can share our opinions, exchange these opinions, and debate over them if we have to. And that is definitely something I think would be lost if the size of the classroom had been expanded. So that intimacy is important because as much as it is an academic conversation, it's also a very personal conversation. So um, yeah, I think you just want to feel as though you're in a space where you won't be castigated for your views, I suppose. like Brianna is drawing a distinction between classes where conversations are fostered and there are no easy answers versus classes where the purpose is simply to bestow the right answers onto students. And isn't college supposed to be about the messy work, the discomfort, the growth? Yeah. Yeah. I like the way you frame that. And I really like how this conversation explored the format of the class, like literally from the physical format of sitting in a circle 
in the Socratic seminar style to, to the dynamics of the Socratic seminar style and students feeling like it's one of the best ways to level in as much as is possible the power imbalance between professor and students. And Mark reminds us that the small class sizes at St. Rose are an important piece in making this type of conversation possible. There's some more neighbors who have come back. Let's pick up where we left off last time with professor of English, Jen Marlowe, and her first year writing student, Hannah Parsons. So in terms of the class, we had the readings themselves, which I had, you know, radically changed over the past few years. So the kind of content that we're studying and talking and writing about was different, but also the pedagogical theories that that undergirded that class had also changed. And in particular, the scholarship in my field on assessment practices, um, and that is, you know, grading and feeding feedback of student work have become very much grounded in decolonizing syllabi and um, thinking about the ways in which assessment has historically been on this kind of Eurocentric model of how we speak and and write in um, standard American or, or mainstream English and the kind of problem with that when that is what most of our grading and assessment is based on. I was especially influenced by Asawa Nui's work in this area on assessment, and he does labor-based grading. He use, utilizes um, grading contracts and labor-based grading. And so for this class, I had all of you keep a labor log, which I think a lot of people saw it as a chore, and it is. That's not to say it isn't, and I get that. But the theory behind labor-based grading is it's an approach to decentering whiteness and particular ways of, of thinking and writing and instead focus on the labor that is going into the class and the learning that's going into the class. And so one of the ways was the, just the grading system in general was very much based on you do the work, you put in a lot of effort, you put in the labor to earn the points for that work and you therefore succeed in the class. But the labor logs in particular also were a way to call both my attention to the invisible labor, right? It's not a math equation that gets all written out for me to see. I see you do drafts, but I don't necessarily see all the kind of thinking and drafting and brainstorming that goes into writing. And so those labor logs were there to kind of make visible the labor that I don't get to see all of you do. So when I first saw the labor log, I was like, okay, I understand this. Like, this makes sense. I kind of like this. And then by the second week of the labor log, I was kind of like, this is such a pain. <laughs> but, um, but basically in the labor log, we were asked like, where were you? Um, what were you doing? How long did you spend on this? And like, um, how would you rate your mood and how like how much effort did you put in and what date was it was it classwork was it were you in the classroom was it homework was it reading like it was all these different kinds of things and there were just so many ways that you could earn points like we had a class Instagram that I could have posted something that like we were doing in class there's weekly prompts that we could have done we had discussion boards that we could have like posed a question and anybody could have answered which were usually pretty active actually and everybody was actually really helpful with the feedback feedback that they gave too and any feedback that you went went into the labor log like any of the anything you posted online went into the labor log so it was kind of like 
you wanted to post, but you also were like, shoot, now I'm going to have to log this. <laughs> but the more you logged, the more points you got. <laughs> and then by the time I looked at the end, at the end of the semester, I was like, wow, I actually did a lot of work for this class. And I was kind of like, oh, Hannah, like pat on the back for you. <laughs> like, you actually like put a lot of time and effort into this. It was good, like going back, keeping that, oh, a record of what you did. I felt productive and I like feeling productive. <laughs> That's good to hear. I mean, I think it's interesting because some of these anti-racist pedagogical approaches too, um, though they come out of, you know, a, a new way's work comes out of his desire to kind of respond to, you know, a, a kind of linguistic justice movement, a concern that white supremacist language practices are what are, you know, guiding our, our grading and feedback loops in the, in the writing classroom, you know, but interestingly, I think by also employing them, it benefits all students in all kinds of different ways. And like you're saying, kind of that releasing that pressure a little bit of um, knowing there's going to be, you know, this rubric or this grade that's coming at you and instead focusing on the labor and the feedback and the ability to do things over again and, and continually improve them. That's again, beneficial for, for, I think, everybody in the classroom, or that's my hope, at least. That's always my goal that I'm working towards. So that was one thing I definitely didn't like in high school was like there was so much stress like if you didn't hand it in on time and they were like in college they're gonna hammer you for this they're not even gonna take your late work like how dare you hand this in late to me and expect to get like only 10 points off like I had a teacher in high school who was like if you hand it in one day late you're max getting half credit and I was like what so one of the other things you know that I I do are are um our best by dates, right? That there's not a penalty for, for late work. And that just even, even with students that I've gone over that with, it's just like, they're just not, they're like, I'm going to be penalized. They're like, can I do this? And I'm going to be penalized. And what's my penalty? How many points am I going to lose? And that it's still just this like numeric, what is my grade going to be? What bad thing is going to come out of this? And I'm like, if you're wrapped up in that, then, then you're not learning. And my goal is to have you learning. Like if I had a ton of work to do one weekend, if I had, there were days when I would have like a bio test and a chem test and a computer science test all in the same week. And there were just days where I, there were just weeks where I just couldn't get to the weekly writing. Like it would just totally slip my mind. So being able to do it a day late and being able to focus more time on studying for those big tests, it allowed me to do a lot better in those classes. I liked the flexibility because it was more of like, I what I put into the course was what I got out of it and I got a lot out of it and it taught me to do that with my other courses like in chemistry I know there were like it's a it's a hard class so by doing more work outside of class like doing the practice problems doing this like doing the research doing the, all that kind of stuff and like pedal to the metal outside of class and like then going back into the classroom and asking the right questions and then doing the all that work like you had to do work outside of all of my classes and that was different like high school does not tell you that like they're like you got to go to class every day but they don't tell you like you got to spend like six hours doing homework outside of class like it's a lot it was definitely eye-opening. It was definitely an adjustment. But I think having that flexibility is with the best by dates, especially in the, like a freshman level class to help you like get adjusted. Cause like, and having a bit of a forgiveness period, like it was really nice. I was stressed, but I wasn't like overly stressed. Like, oh my God, I'm going to fail and I'm going to have to drop out and I'm going to have to blah, 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 blah. So it was, it was relieving. It was a good, it was a good practice.
and again, in my mind, it's just like, if you're spending that weekend, you know, where you have three tests and the weekly writing to do, and you're so stressed out about everything that only inhibits your learning. Like now you are able to like learn your chemistry and do the writing assignment, you know, and learn from both of those, as opposed to just being caught up in this like loop of, of, of panic, which I'm trying to avoid. I liked the grading system. It gave me more freedom to be like, I know this needs to be better. And it took a lot of pressure off. I know not just me, but I talked to some other people by the end of the course and it took a lot of pressure off a lot of us that like this paper doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be improved. And she's going to give us feedback on how we can make it better. So it was definitely not as stressful as past English classes I've taken. And I really appreciated that. And I know a lot of other students did too. My assessment practices and the ways that they've been changed by these anti-racist pedagogical approaches, and they're challenging for students, to be quite honest. Students are not accustomed to grading contracts. They're not accustomed to keeping track of their own of their own labor. They're not accustomed to not seeing, you know, a number, specific number letter grade show up in their Canvas gradebook every week. You know, I think one of the things I have to continually do is, is make my pedagogy, you know, more transparent to students and explain why the system is broken, you know, um, in terms of grading and assessment or why I, you know, why I believe that it is and why these practices are more equitable and more inclusive to larger and more diverse groups of students and, and take into account different types of learners even. It's still a challenge. It's a challenge to have students understand why I do things differently. I just had that conversation at the end of class today too, like, go do the prompt, host it. Nothing bad is going to happen. In fact, only good things can come out of it because you're actually going to do the work. And so that's just a real, I think, shift. And they're like, but other, you know, in other classes, it's it's like this. And like, yeah, I mean, it is. And I understand those practices. Um, it's just not how we're operating in this particular class. It was also really nice for me to take this class because I'm a science major. So I'm not really given the opportunity to talk about more right-brained thinking, for lack of better terms. I'm more focused on science and math and like taking the English class really helped me like dig into that more. And I, it like inspired more reading and further research. And it was brain food for me. Like even right now, like I have four or five books that I'm reading that spanned because of what we were talking about in English 105. Like I was writing papers on this. This is another perspective. And it just, it still makes me think. So even though I'm not getting that information in my other courses, like you can't really learn about that in programming. <laughs> it's kind of hard to incorporate anti-racial pedagogy in programming. So I read a lot outside of class. So having that, having those thoughts already kind of like stirring around in the back of my mind, it encourages me to all continue that. I love what you were, what you were saying. I, wa I want to challenge one, one part of that. And 
that is it's difficult to bring anti-racist pedagogy or anti-racist thinking into into a programming class. However, I would challenge that by saying it's probably important to do so in that I am going to guess that um, certainly if the field of writing studies had a whiteness problem, I am going to guess that that the field of programming probably has a whiteness problem as well. And that programming and programmers are the humans that underlie our entire technological infrastructure. And so the amount of power that resides in the hands of programmers is kind of terrifying. It's also so, terrifying because being a woman in programming, it's also not very common. It's definitely more of a male-dominated field. So that also comes with its other challenges. Yep, absolutely. Like like thinking about, about gender in, in that field. So I think that's the other thing too coming out of this course is I really want folks to be thinking about what is an anti-racist approach to, to mathematics? What do we need to be thinking about in the field of mathematics that has to do with issues of race? Because they are there. And like with like I didn't see it at first with writing instruction because it wasn't super visible, but that's the problem. And likewise with programming, I mean, that is that is just one of those areas that we need to be really thinking about that. And, and if students could leave, you know, 105 with some of these, these ideas and thinking about this and carry this with them to these other disciplines, well, that would make me very happy. <laughs> we should have a professional development meeting for all the professors where we have to read at least one article pertaining to our topic written by somebody and encourage this conversation. I think that would be really, really fascinating, honestly, because you're right. Like, it's very, it's hard, but it's not impossible. So like learning about Black women in science or learning about Spanish programmers or learning about a Chinese physicists, like learning about all these different things and like, because it's hard. And then like, I know I'm, I'm focused on getting the work done for my class and I can all, I only have so much time outside of class to look into all those things. So without being exposed to that in the classroom, it's very difficult for you to have more of a understanding of what's going on in the world. It's very hard to become more of a developed student and to recognize the biases that we already, that we have. Like we all have biases and it's hard to recognize them if we don't know that we have them. So to have them challenged is really, it's like, you can go two ways. You can either be completely against it or you can grow and learn and you can learn more about it. I definitely always try and take the grow and learn path because I just think it's a better way to go. And it's, it's benefited me so far. <laughs> and I love that about you. <laughs> and I hope so many people get to experience you as a student for those very reasons. <laughs> Hannah, this was this was great fun. It was it was lovely to talk to you as always. Thank you. It was fun talking to you too. I really loved hearing about Jen's innovative grading techniques and even more about how they impacted Hannah directly and positively. Yeah, she said she felt so productive and that is what you want your students to feel, right? Yeah, I like to feel productive. It instills purpose. They can see a direct connection between what they learn in the class and the work they produce for that class. 
I would so like to pick Jen's brain more about how to implement a contract grading system. Here's to more conversations. And here's to more conversations from every side of this issue, from the black-white binary to beyond. Here, here. Liz, we did it. We concluded the first season of Dear Neighbor. We did, but we couldn't have done it without some important neighbors. Our graduate assistant, Allie, who pushed herself out of her comfort zone by interviewing students early on and by appearing in episode one. Thank you, Allie. Yes, thank you. And our campus community neighbors who are dedicated listeners with good ears and brains and voices for when we need to bounce ideas around. Thank you. And a big heroic thanks to Christian, who is standing at the precipice of graduation and who has been instrumental in making Dear Neighbor what it is today. He's worked tirelessly, he's open to feedback, and he pushes himself to make better and better work. Thank you, Christian. Not sure what we're going to do without you. about this episode or want to hear something in a future episode, drop us a note at www.stros.edu backslash dear hyphen neighbor and scroll to the submission form at the bottom of the screen or send us an email or voice memo at dearneighbor at stros.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, dear underscore neighbor underscore podcast. Neighbor is hosted by Liz Richards and Emily Pinkerton, who also produced the show, edited, engineered, and mixed by Christian Shear, and event and administrative support from Allie Ryder. Our theme music, entitled Sad at the Party, was composed by Michael Sanchez. Funding for Dear Neighbor is provided by the Provost's Office at the College of St. Rose. Thanks so much to our participants from this episode in order of appearance. Jada Hart, Angela Ledford, Brianna Casserly, Mark Edom, Jen Marlowe, and Hannah Parsons. And big thanks again to you, listeners, for a successful first season of Dear Neighbor. Liz, my friend, my neighbor, have a great summer. I'm looking forward to season two in the fall. See you around the neighborhood.